You were top secret. Top secret. Did right. you consider yourself a spy? Uh, technically, probably, but no, I didn't <laughs> look at it that way. Spy, a person employed by one nation to secretly convey classified information of strategic importance to another nation. That's one definition of the word spy, and it most certainly fits John Lee's mission in the Air Force in the mid-50s. That doesn't mean that John fancied a Walther PPK or preferred his martinis shaken, not stirred. Actually, John says his job was kind of boring, but certainly necessary during a time of heightened Cold War tension. Simply put, as you'll hear, John's job was to listen carefully. Ceasefires declared on the Korean Peninsula in late July 1953, and two years later, you enlisted. Correct. And why did you do that? I had uh, gone to college for a year and decided that that wasn't really, I wasn't ready for college. I was quite immature. I went to work with my father and his business for a year and a half and decided that wasn't what I was cut out to do. <laughs> okay. And uh, so it was, I knew I had a, responsibility. I knew that I had uh, either army or whatever. I decided to uh, enlist in the Air Force. I knew it was a four-year term, but I figure I'm still, you know, I'm 19, 20 years old. I still had time. So I decided to pick the Air Force. I actually joined on the 1st of February, 1953. And uh, that was basically my reasoning. I knew I had the responsibility. I knew I had faced it at some time. I figured maybe this four year, uh, four years will allow me to get see a little bit of the world more than two years. I'd probably be stationed in the states. Where did that sense of obligation come from? Probably my experience in the Second World War, because it was really the whole country was all so together on the Second World War. You're too young to remember this, but in every corner of every busy street, they had a big bin where you would put your fats, your bacon grease, newspapers, old tires, whatever. And we were kind of surrounded by all of this. And uh, I remember in grammar school, St. Gregory's Grammar School in Chicago, the big thing with the boys was to draw pictures of airplanes. And, Japanese fighters and American fighters going at it, having a dogfight. And so there was a real kind of a, a spirit that this was a great, uh, uh, just a great time. It wasn't, as I since have found out, for a lot of people. No, but it made an impression on oh, you. Oh, absolutely. A lasting impression. Yeah, right. And uh, I, I knew it was coming. Turns out that uh, became a Air Force uh, four-year term. I had two brothers. They both were Air Force. One was career. One joined the Air Force just about three weeks after I did. So it, uh, it became kind of a family thing. I was the first. What were your expectations when you went off to basic? I knew it was going to be very different because I had led a pretty sheltered life, a very secure, a very loving family, and I never had to worry about anything. I knew it was, I had never gone to camp. My brothers had gone to camp. I just wasn't, it just didn't uh, interest me. So I knew it was going to be different, but I figured, oh, I, I can certainly put up with it. And it turned out to be a wonderful experience, the basic training. Of course, I'm remembering the good times. I'm sure when I was down there, I was 
I was bitching and griping about a lot of things. So my ex when I got there, I had all kinds of opportunities. I, you know, they tested me, found out what I was suitable for, and that's when this experience of the Russian language yeah, opened up. One of the things that they found you suitable for right, was right. your understanding right. of language, foreign languages, right. but you didn't pick Russian. They gave you Russian, they gave right? Russian. The only what did you think when they said? Uh, well, I I knew Russia was in the news a lot at that time. That was a real concern of ours. The options that were open were German, Russian, or a che a Czechoslovakian or Chinese. And Russian was the one that they needed the most bodies. Of course. So uh, a few, I didn't know any of the guys who went in for Chinese. I think they were all probably Fulbright scholar types. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, uh, I took a course down at Kelly Air Force Base after basic training at Lackland and took a course. It was, a, I believe it was two or three weeks. It was just English language. And based on the results of that, that's when they decided where I was, where I was going to go. Were you excited about that? Uh, I was, yes, I, re I really was, because I knew I was going to get to travel, mm -hmm. and that was important. Set a stage for me regarding our relationship with the then Soviets. Things were really heating up. At the end of, the, of World War II, or 48, 49, I think it was, we had the Berlin airlift. Right. This was after the, the airlift. I think the uh, airlift was probably, what, about 48 or 48, something? 48, I think, yeah, yeah. Right. And so this was after that. But the Cold War was very much evident. Yeah. And uh, uh, Stalin was still alive. And so we knew that uh, we knew that we were going to have to face up to this at some point. So anyway, that's what they decided. They had a need for uh, Russian translators. And uh, that's where I went. So you're off to Syracuse University, where you are schooled in the Russian language, right. and they are Soviet expatriates who are there. Exactly. Uh, who, who were your teachers? What were they like? Uh, they were all, as you said, expatriates. They were very, very nice people. Uh, Dr. Krasnopolsky was the head teacher. It was very uh, non-military with them. You know, they were teaching Russian conversational language. Mm -hmm. That's as far as it went, because I... I imagine they had some kind of a clearance, but it wasn't a very high clearance. Well, these are all people who left the Soviet Union right. because of their disdain for communism. Right. There okay. was one woman, Mrs. Collins. She had married a man named Collins, and uh, she was from Georgia. Mm -hmm. And she was very bitter about what the Russians had done to, their, to her country and to some of the other countries. And I, re I remember four or five of those people in there. So did you find that you were really taking to the language? Did you pick it up pretty quickly? Uh, not really. It was a Cyrillic alphabet, which is, uh, I think it's 32 characters compared to 26. So that was a, a challenge. But uh, it was stretched out over an entire two semesters. So they took it kind of slowly. And we built up to it gradually. And uh, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I ever became totally fluent. I know I didn't become totally fluent in it. I might have been if I had continued with it after, but once I got over into Germany, it was totally different. It was all military lingo. And uh, so it was, 
I never, a couple of the fellows I knew actually kept up with it. They bought a Russian novel in Russian, uh, Tulsa, I think it was, uh, War and Peace, and uh, they they were reading it and they they stayed with it, but I didn't. Most most of us. That's didn't. some amazing <laughs> dedication. Reading War and oh, Peace in Russian. Yeah. Well, I yeah. guess you're getting ready for stuff then. Well, when, when you, you have that. two and a half, three years. <laughs> but when you're at Syracuse and you're being taught, learning the language, do you know at that point in time what you're going to be doing, where you're going to be doing it? Not really. Okay. Not really. We knew obviously it had to do with R- Russian. We would be somehow interpreting or translating Russian, but uh, we had to get a security clearance, and the process actually took a long time from the time I got to Syracuse, which was in September of 1955, until we graduated, which was in, I think, late April of 56. They were trying to uh, get a clearance for me. I know my relatives up in Wisconsin were approached by FBI, things like that, but my clearance didn't actually come through until uh, I was already stationed in Germany. You were top-level clearance, too, uh, weren't yeah, you? I was, yeah, top secret. You were top secret? Top secret, Did right. you consider yourself a spy? Uh, technically, probably, but no, I didn't <laughs> look at it that way. All right. <laughs> so you get to Germany, and what are you told you're going to be doing, and where are you going to be doing it? Well, they processed us down in Kaiserslautern, in Germany, and from there, uh, they told me, oh, they actually gave us a choice of assignments. One was in Kassel, Germany. One was in Fulda, the Wasserkupi, which is up in the Rhone Mountains near Fulda, Germany. And I don't remember where the other one was. My roommate from Syracuse, he chose Fulda. And so I figured, uh, I thought about it for a day or so, and I got back to them. I said, I think I'll go to Fulda. We had been roommates for a year, and we got along very well. He was a... He was a graduate of LSU, an architect that had joined the Air Force, wanted to see some of the world before he settled down. And uh, at that time, Fulda was filled up, so I ended up in Castle. So I got to Castle, and by this time, the clearance had come through. I honestly don't remember my first experience walking into one of these vans and seeing all the, this bank of radios on both sides with fellows sitting there twirling dials and then writing like crazy. <laughs> because uh, we did not translate when we wrote. We wrote everything in Russian. And then, of course, we had to use our own form of shorthand. And this is not conversational Russian. This is military oh, Russian. Absolutely. You are listening to communication between bomber pilots, right? Right. Soviet pilots. Right. Flying over East Germany? East Germany, and they were mostly on missions or going up getting weather reports in the morning and things like that and they were trans they were sending these uh, signals was going to the ground which we didn't we didn't intercept the ground a part of it you're only hearing the pilot we're only hearing the pilots right okay walk me into the the van the truck whatever then give me a picture of what you're looking at well it was a I, d- I didn't know what to expect but you walked in it was just a bank of radios on both sides it was long it was a big I'm, I'm guessing it was probably 25 feet 30 feet long and uh, how many positions in there I believe there were like four or five positions on each side so there was a total of 10 positions and uh, they were fully occupied and guys were it was a lot of you were searching out 
You were searching for frequencies. Okay. And, you know, you're twirling a dial. You're twirling the dial. Right, right. And, of course, you'd come across mostly German German uh, traffic. But uh, when you hit hear something in Russian, that was you locked in on that. You pulled out your pad and you start writing like crazy. Did you know who you were listening to? Did you have any idea of their location? No. No, uh, since it was air, we knew, we knew they were flying fairly close to where we were because that was the purpose of our, they, they positioned us along the East German border and Castle was all just a few miles away. And we knew there were Russians on the other side who were doing the same thing. But then down in Fulda, we well, it was probably 25, 30 miles from the border. And then finally in Hof, Germany, that was a Czechoslovakian border. We were right on top of the border. You could, you could actually, driving to and from the van uh, for your shift, you could actually see East Germany. We were that close. This was a spooky time, wasn't it? It was. It was because we were, we were scared. You know the. We had lived through the Second World War, which really didn't affect me that much. But we knew this next one, if it came... World War Three. It was going to be... Atomic. It was going to affect a lot of people. Right. Yeah. And then we later had Khrushchev banging his shoe on the podium at the United Nations, right. and we will bury you. And right. I mean, it was right out in the open. Right. Everything was evident. Absolutely. The the only thing that happened in all the time I was over there that was close to uh, conflict was the Hungarian uprising took place. And I believe that was in 56. Anyway, the Russians were thrown out of uh, Hungary and they left and the borders opened up. I even had uh, one of the fellows I knew there had figured he wanted to see Hungary. So he went down to Vienna. He had a leave coming. He took it, and he walked into Hungary. And he told us a story later. He said he was about a 20-mile hike into Hungary. He said a lot of people were actually moving into Hungary, going back to Hungary. And uh, he said he came out. He said it came out uh, down this road. It, it, he, there was a valley down below, and he, he saw Russian tanks like maybe five miles away, they were all moving towards the border. So he turned tail and he, he got out of Hungary quickly because they closed that border. That was only a few weeks that actually the Russians were gone. They came back in force. To shut the gate. Shut, shut the gate and take over again. Churchill coming to Westminster College and announcing that there was an iron curtain which right. had a profound yes. effect. That right. phrase was picked up and used, well, still used today right. to a lesser extent. But yeah. you guys all had uh, the, the uh, top grade security clearance. Right. So that meant you couldn't breathe a word about what you were doing. Oh, no, we were sworn to secrecy, right. So you couldn't go out to a bar and have a fine beer in Germany and shoot the breeze with the guys. No. You could not no. do that. No. No. Did anybody do that? 
we had one fellow who, uh, the, the bars or guest houses, as they call them, closed at a certain time, which 10 or 11 o'clock, and he had some free time. And so after he, he uh, visited this guest house and had a few too many, he decided he knew, had heard about a guest house over in East Germany. And he knew there was an opening in, the, in a place where he could get through. And so he went over there, and he got caught, and he got arrested. And he got uh, actually ended up in Berlin. The Russians, after two or three weeks, they turned him back to us, and he was, uh, I don't know what happened to him. I know he was shipped back to the States. And, they, they certainly must have interrogated oh, him. Oh, yeah, they, yeah, they did. But so he came back to pick up his things, but we weren't allowed to talk to him. So I don't know actually how his experience went in That's Berlin. One casualty of misjudgment, I right. guess. Yeah. Huh? I have too much beer, German beer. <laughs> <laughs> when you're in the trailer, and do you, do you remember? Can you remember the first time you zeroed in on a conversation? Not really, but I'm sure I had someone with me. Mm-hmm. I was probably had ear earphones on, and he was probably doing the actual. Job. Because I know it was probably, I would guess, it was another three or four months before I became fairly let, proficient they, at yeah. this. You're not ready to solo. No, until, no, yeah. right, right. Okay. And uh, so it was just a matter of doing it and redoing it, and eventually it became very kind of hum, humdrum. Boring? We were, boring, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we were looking for some excitement, and it wasn't there. Nonetheless, you had to record everything. And you had to write it down in, in Russian, as you say. Right, right. So you didn't bother to do the translation there. No. Then what happens to everything you're writing down, all the conversations that the pilots are having with the ground, right. which you cannot hear, so you got one side of the conversation? Right. The first thing we did was uh, we wrote in our own form of shorthand. Mm-hmm. So we had to go back over this and fill it in completely. And uh, then it was sent to another department there, where they actually translated. I eventually ended up in that department too. But they translated, and there they would, if it didn't make sense to them, as often it did, and it was kind of gibberish, they had a, a series of dictionaries. We had backward dictionaries. If you got the last syllable of a word, you would, you would look that up, and then they would give you the words that ended in that. And so you would listen to this, and you would play and replay the tapes until eventually you put together something that was fairly coherent. <laughs> so it should be noted to our younger listeners that you didn't have Google Translator back no, then. That's right. <laughs> we, right. We were a long way from that. Yeah. Do you remember any of the conversations where they just kind of innocent things? You said it was kind of boring after a while. Did they say pilot to pilot, did you have a good cup of coffee this morning? How about a bagel? <laughs> no, not really. They were very, they were very official. Yeah. But uh, actually, there were a couple of cases in which everything was on tape. So when something like that did occur, I never personally encountered that. But when something like that did occur, they would let us listen to it. And I do remember one incident, I think I mentioned this before, that where a C-47 was flying into Berlin from the west, and he had wandered out of his corridor. This is during the second, the second airlift? No, it, the airlift was up, but uh, the, uh, the air flight in and out of Berlin had to be down corridors. Oh, corridors, okay. Corridors, yeah. Right. They couldn't veer out of the corridors. 
Anyway, it was a C-47, and uh, he had wandered out, apparently. I never heard him, but I heard a Russian pilot asking for permission to, uh, to shoot him down, and obviously from the ground they asked him information about it. I remember him saying it was a C-47, Tipa C. Sarxim, which meant C-47. And he asked, he actually, uh, I, I did uh, understand that. He asked for permission to shoot him down, and it was not given, obviously, because that incident did not occur. When you listen to that, that had to be pretty frightening, right? You have a it was. spine tingle? Yeah, it was, yeah. I figured, not terribly frightening for me, but the poor guy who was in the C-47. Oh, well, for sure. Yeah, and if they had shot him down... Who knows what would have happened? Well, at a, at such a tender time in relationships, what that might have ticked off the start of another war. Absolutely, it didn't take a whole lot then, because it, the Cold War was was heated up. It's interesting that you know you're in a trailer at various locations, and you're obviously not too far from the border. And you can actually see to the other side, across the border, and the Russians are over there doing the same thing you're doing. They've got a van. What did it look like? Uh, I actually never saw the Russian uh, vans, and I assume they had the same kind of vans or trucks that we had. But I did see the Army was doing the same thing at Castle. There was an Army base there, too. It was called Roth Western, and the Army was doing the ground traffic. They were intercepting ground traffic. And we saw some of the ground vehicles, uh, but uh, I never saw the the ones that were doing. You could tell the ones that were intercepting air traffic because of the antennas. The antennas we had were God Almighty. Mike, they were some, some of them were two stories high. (laughs) Yeah, and, uh, but the ones who were, they were, we were supposed to be mobile. Were and, you? Uh, just one time. One time we, we packed up and we took a, they called it a hearability test up to northern Germany. And they were asking us, to, that was the uh, part of Germany that was occupied by the, uh, Brit, the Brits. So they handled that area. We handled the central part. And uh, France wasn't involved in this at all. But uh, so we went up there all the way up to Schleswig-Holstein and that was at that time we were truly mobile. I mean, the trucks went up there, and uh, it was it was a big deal. We were only there for a week or two, but uh, well, you couldn't move until you dropped the antenna. That's right. Yeah, the antennas weren't three stories high. No, no. <laughs> and obviously, it wasn't a great success because we never moved up there permanently. Do you think now about how the technology has so dramatically changed from what it was then? I mean. You know, it was state-of-the-art then, but it's pretty primitive. You're spinning a dial trying to lock in on a communication up in the air, which is really cool, but it's not. you don't have any computers. You don't have anything like that. It's like an old uh, crystal radio compared to what we have today, you know. Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, I'm not technologically illiterate, but I'm, I'm not. I'm very slow. And when I think of what I can do now, if, if we had just... 10% 10% of that capability at that time, it would have been a totally different. Of course, the Russians would have had it too. Sure, sure. Maybe, maybe before us. When you look back on it now, your period in the service and doing what you wound up doing, which you didn't know you were going to do, but when you got in, 
It's pretty interesting to think about, isn't it? It is, and I did not think about it for a long, long time. But uh, now that people like you, and when I went on honor flight, Dan Harrington, my friend, who he's kind of fascinated by my story, and uh, when I think about it, yeah, I guess it, I guess it, you know, it was an interesting period of my life, and the whole my whole four years in the service, I'm not remembering. The bad times, and I'm sure there were a few bad times. We might have had a few commanders who were not as nice. understanding as others. <laughs> but uh, no, it was really a fabulous experience, and I would, uh, I would recommend it if I had sons. I have stepsons, but if I had had sons at that time, uh, I would have certainly recommended something like that. Well, when you um, you look back uh, at a time like that, and you, it's a different mood now toward veterans and i ask a lot of people why is that perhaps that you know the, the stories about the fellows who are not in combat perhaps the stories of fellows who were in combat are more easily told mm-hmm. maybe more dramatic but there's a sense among people who were not on the front line that maybe they're not as eligible in their own minds for the recognition that they deserve why do you think that is and, and, and I should say, you are among that group of people. Absolutely. You thought, you know, I yeah. just did my thing and yeah. no big yeah. deal. Absolutely. You know, thinking about that, having lived, having grown up during the Second World War, and then not knowing, not hearing any of the stories after that war, because the men, and now that I've read fairly extensively about the Second World War, now I really understand what they went through and they were true heroes, as I feel the men who fought in Korea and Vietnam, Afghanistan, they are the true heroes. But nobody spoke about it after the Second World War. They went back, and my uh, wife's first husband on the GI Bill went to college, got his degree, and life went on. Never talked to his family, his kids, about it. Then Korea happened. Same kind of thing, even after Korea. There wasn't a whole lot of stories that were told. But then Vietnam came, and you know, after that, the way those boys were treated, both while they were there and after the war, the way they, uh, they were just spit on, basically, you know, literally spit on when they came back. That opened my eyes a lot. And then I started thinking about it. I was really one of the fortunate ones because I didn't have to live through what they lived. And I did get some of the benefits, but uh, it's, it's mind-boggling what some of these men just... There are so many men who should be wearing the, uh, you know, the medals, the Medal of Honor that were never recognized because there were literally thousands and thousands of men in the Second World War who deserved Medal of Honor and maybe got little recognition. And that was kind of their own choice in a way. Not so with not so with the Vietnam. You know, they spoke up. Thank God they did. And I think more so now, after the passage of half a century, many of those fellows are are fully talking about the experiences that they had, the damage that was done to them yeah. as soldiers when they came home, and were, as you say, spit on. Yeah. 
And maybe there's some catharsis involved in that for them. I would hope so. I'm amazed how well the Second World War veterans who really were in the thick of it, how they recovered. And I'm not quite as amazed by Vietnam because recently now we we have come to the point where we're realizing what they went through and we're honoring them for that. I mean, they had a a real bad time for maybe 20 or 25 years after the war was over. But uh, you do a lot of reflecting. It's interesting, John, that you, at this point in your life, I mean, you're reading The Last Hill, epic story of a Ranger Battalion in uh, World War II, Battle of the Bulge, right? Battle of the Bulge, right. So we're going into our past. We want to know more about what happened. And because there are so many stories out there, individual heroism, and we want to know about those things. Yes, right. And uh, my grandkids, I have one grandson who accompanied me to uh, Normandy uh, three years ago. I, I took, the, I took a, a riverboat, a Viking tour to Normandy, and my grandson, Kevin, uh, went with me. He's, he's read a lot. He, he's a teacher Young man, he's 35 years old or so now, but he's got kids of his own. He coaches, he teaches, so he's very, very busy. And I'm going to pass on my collection of books to him at some point in his life. I hope he's able to sit back and relax a little, get some time to himself, which he doesn't have right now, uh, and uh, read this. But there is a, a wide variety of information books out there well-written books some of the books that are anecdotal or maybe the story of one man's experience at a particular time are very good but i enjoy the books that have both that are researched and have an index in the back where because i constantly am referring back to the index and i'm jumping back and forth a lot because it's a fascinating period of history i lived through a little bit of it and uh, at the beginning, and now, of course, we're all living through it now. Do you take stock of all the things you've seen in your life and remember that this was a phenomenal time of dramatic change and threats that we all could have been a burning cinder at some That's point? Right. That's right, yeah. I'm not sure I thought a whole lot of it at the time. You know, we were, those were the days when they were doing atomic bomb drills in the schools, where the kids were told, just get under your desk. Get under your desk. That's the Lewis Black routine, yeah. And I could go out of of the schoolyard and melt later on. (laughs) Right. We all lived through different periods of history, and how we adjust to those periods of history are interesting. When you went on honor flight, and you were, as we said earlier, a little reluctant to go because you didn't feel you were deserving, did that strike a chord with you when you went on the flight and came home? It, yes, once I got there. Mm-hmm. Being at uh, Midway Airport at 3.30 in the morning didn't strike much, except <laughs> <laughs> word hurts. But, yeah. uh, but uh, when, when we got there, uh, I was really very impressed and very, kind of surprised. We, you know, I had an individual. Actually, she turned out to be a master sergeant, Air Force master sergeant, who was assigned to me for the day. And I found out that she uh, was giving up her day off or free day free time to do this and she accompanied us on the bus and to every every place we went 
And uh, so as I went through the day, I was amazed at how many young people knew that we were veterans because we had a lot of, we had, I think, five or six buses. I don't remember exactly. There were, I think, 123 of us on that particular flight. And there were six Second World War veterans, and I got to sit next to one of them, which was interesting. But throughout the day, people coming up and shaking our hand, and kids were coming up and saying, thank you for your service. And that had already started to appear back here in the States. You know, for for 50 years, I heard nothing about, you know, and I didn't think much about it. But then all of a sudden, it became, people became aware of what, you know, what the uh, veterans had done. And people were, whenever I got a veteran's discount, they always say, thank you for your service. <laughs> I don't know if they really mean it. Mean it. No, I right. think they do. But uh, yeah, during the day, and the monuments were, out, you know, were just mind-boggling. I had been to, uh, to uh, Washington probably five or six times when I was an eighth grade teacher, we did a trip there every year. Sure. Five. So I had seen some of them, but I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen Korea. I hadn't seen uh, Vietnam, and uh, so yeah, it was really, it was it was something. And just people, as our buses were going, passing through Washington, or uh, people would just stop on the street and salute the bus, and that really amazed me because I had never seen anything like that. The uh, recognition we got there, oh, you were talking about the whole experience, coming back to Midway. That was something I never anticipated. I hadn't, I told my kids about going. Dan got me on a flight on a very short notice. Uh, Dan contacted my kids unbeknownst to me. Although I had mentioned to them I was going, I made, I, uh, I downplayed it. I said, you know, don't change your plans, don't. Don't, uh, it's no big deal. No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, Dan had contacted them and got some of the grandkids and the kids to write, and nephews and things like that, to write letters. But uh, coming back, when we got off the plane, I figured, that's it. In fact, Dan was going to drive me home. And uh, when we got there, the kids were there, and I was met by a, a wheelchair, and I told the Navy uh, recruit who from Great Lakes who was there he said you know uh, Mr. Lee he said please sit down I said I don't need a wheelchair he said no no you need a wheelchair he said please <laughs> so I did they wheeled us in and the reception we got at Midway reception going was something the reception coming home was phenomenal yeah so it was it was a great experience I'm glad yeah that's great yeah well a master spy deserves that uh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Airman First Class, John Lee, thank you. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Paul. And Master thank you Spy. For, <laughs> thank, for, thank you for everything you've done for the, for the veterans in our country. My pleasure. My honor. We hope you enjoyed today's Honor Thank Inspire episode. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.